Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all on this beautiful Sunday afternoon, no matter where you may be on the globe. And uh, this week, uh, we have a very special parsha, the parsha of Ayetze. Um, and this week, we started to really focus on the life and times of Yaakov, Jacob, the third of our forefathers. We have Abram, Abraham, whom we learned about for about two or three weeks. And we have Yitzchak, Isaac, we learned about last week. And now we talk about Yaakov. Last week, we, uh, the Torah discusses the famous story. There was the struggle between the twins, Yaakov and Esau. Uh, Yaakov was, Yaakov was uh, involved in, in Torah study, in the service of God. He was called Ishtam. He was the simple, he wasn't simple, he was, this, he was the straight guy. He was the one that was doing everything right. And then you had Esau. Esau was the aggressive and sometimes violent and, and, and disruptive type of person. Um, these two twins, you wouldn't imagine they would come from the same uh, set of parents, but they did. Um, and uh, Yitzchak wanted to bless Esau uh, with the tremendous blessings of, of, of eternity, of, of destiny, of, of the world, uh, which is a, a question for itself why he did that. And in fact, in the JLI class that we're going to be having this Tuesday, that's what the, the topic of discussion is going to be. The secret behind that famous struggle between Yaakov and Esau. Um, be it as it may, Rivka, their mother, engineered a whole deception which allowed for Yaakov to receive the blessings instead of Esau. Esau was fuming. He was very, very mad to the point that he wanted to kill his brother. And Rivka prophetically divined that that was Esau's intention, so she advised Yaakov to run away to Haran, to her hometown, to go to, uh, to hang out or hide out by her brother Lavan um, until Esau would calm down. Uh, the way she presented it to Yitzchak was she didn't want Yaakov to marry the local girls. She saw the girls that Esau had married were idolaters and they were really rotten. And he said, if, and she said, look, if, if Yaakov is going to marry from the local girls uh, who had all grown up in heathen homes um, and were very immoral and unethical, she said, no, what, what is my life worth? So, she, so, so Yitzchak sent off Yaakov to go to Haran, to Lavan, to go and find a wife from their own family. And that's what he did. So this week's parasha opens up that Yaakov is, is traveling to Haram. Uh, he's traveling alone. In fact, he has nothing with him. At one point, Esav had uh, dispatched his oldest son, Eliphaz, to go and kill Yaakov. When Eliphaz reached Yaakov, and Yaakov understood that Eliphaz was on, had a hit job to, to do. So uh, Eliphaz, at the end of the day, grew up in Yitzchak's home. And he grew up, Yaakov was his uh, beloved uncle. So Eliphaz comes to Yaakov and he says, I'll tell you the truth, I'm in a bind. My father told me to kill you, but I really don't want to. What should I do? So Yaakov told him, I have an idea for you. Someone who is penniless, someone who has nothing, is considered like he's dead. There's a certain level of death when you don't even have a penny to your name. So take all of my money. And so now it's, it's very technical. You know, you can come back to your father and you say, Yaakov is not alive. <laughs> you know, I, I killed him. I took away all of his money. So technically speaking, you're listening to what your father said. And on the other hand, you're, uh, you're not going to do that terrible sin of murder. Uh, and so essentially Yaakov found himself traveling off to Lavan, traveling off to the faraway land of Haran to go and be by his uncle Lavan uh, to find a wife, etc. He's going penniless. The Torah tells us that before he, uh, before he ended up going to Haran, he stopped off in a certain spot. 
The Torah is not very clear what that spot was, but tradition teaches us that that spot was the mountain of Moriah, which today is called Jerusalem, the very spot where later on the temple was built, the holy temple was built. That very same spot was the spot on which Abraham uh, offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Obviously, he didn't kill him at the end of the day, but when he was told to bring him as a sacrifice, he was told to go to that mountain. This was the same mountain that Adam, the first man, had offered sacrifices. So it was already known then to a unique, specific few, uh, the specialty, the specialness of this mountain, of this space. And um, Yaakov came to that space and he prayed. And the Torah tells us that he went to sleep. And in that sleep, he had a dream. While he was sleeping, he had a dream, the very famous dream of the sulam, of the, the, the tall ladder, that the bottom of the ladder was on earth and the top of the ladder reached heaven. And in the dream, he sees angels going up and going down. That's the beginning of the parasha, where Yaakov basically has a vision of angels. And God speaks to him. We'll go, to the, and go, we'll go into that in, in greater detail. At the end of the parasha, so then throughout the parasha, we learn about how Yaakov marries his wives, the whole story about that, and he has children. Um, he, uh, he does tremendous work while he is by Lavan, and after 20 years, he amasses a fortune. And now he's returning home. God tells him to go back home to his father Yitzchak. He's returning home, whereas on the way there, he was uh, alone and penniless. On the way back, he's married, has a very large family, and is extremely wealthy. And on the way back, we learn how, um, how he meets angels again. The Torah says the word that, that he, he met up with, with, um, with crowds of angels on his way back to the land of Israel. So the parasha begins with angels and ends with angels. Um, and and the, the theme of the, of the teaching we're going to be learning today is, is to really find out what, what is this deal with these angels? I mean, we're not going to become professionals in understanding Jewish thought about angels, but what is the message to us? Because the Torah is not a storybook, it's not a history book. The Torah doesn't just want to regale us with tales about angels and people and, and, and their meetings. But if there is some type of, um, if, if there is a story about a person meeting an angel, and, it, and it, we're talking about a person who is very relevant to each and every one of us because he's one of our patriarchs, and therefore whatever has happened to them is relevant to each one of us, what does that have to do with us, people that don't see angels? And I really hope you don't. Um, just to uh, qualify what I just said, uh, I was once giving a class about the splitting of the Red Sea. And at one point, I just commented, I said, I truly hope none of you ever see such a thing. So afterwards, I was approached by, by two, two of the women that were there. They approached me and they said, Rabbi, you know, you mentioned that you hope that we would never see the splitting of the sea. Why did you say that? I said, tell me the honest truth. If you were standing on the beach, all of a sudden, the sea split. And in the middle of that was like this, this, this tunnel that was completely dry and these fruit trees were up there and you're able to walk through it. How would you react? And they thought for a second, they said, we'd probably faint. I said, no. So <laughs> I make a lot of sense, right? I really hope that you don't encounter such uh, weird and awesome and crazy things. Uh, but there are definitely people that have encountered them and they had the mental capacity and the spiritual capacity to handle all of it. So Jacob was obviously was on, a, was on a different level and he was able to see angels, interact with them, deal with them. And even in next week's parasha, we'll learn how he fights with them. He goes through a whole wrestling match uh, with, with, with a certain angel. But really the question is, what does that mean to us, people that 
do not interact with angels, will not interact with, with angels, and should not interact with angels. What does this story have to do with us? So before we get into the actual teaching, as we usually do, we are going to learn some of the, the sources that I think are very relevant, important background that we need in order to properly understand uh, what the Rebbe taught. Uh, I believe this week it's from 1961, 1960 actually, um, from right after the holidays of 1960. So let's go to page number six. Uh, I hope all of you received the source sheet. And even if you didn't, um, shouldn't be too difficult to follow along. Source number one, uh, we're going to just learn basically quickly. We'll read through the, the first story of Yaakov meeting up with the angels. Yaakov left Be'er Sheva, which was the place where his father Yitzchak lived. He left Be'er Sheva and set out for Haram. And he came to the place, the place. It doesn't tell us what the place was, but tradition tells us it was the city of Jerusalem on the mountain of Moriah. And lodged there because the sun had set. And he took some of the stones of the place and placed them at his head. And he laid down in that place. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the ground, and its top reached to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. This is important. The angels were going up and going down. And Hashem was standing beside him, and he said, I am Hashem, the God of your father, Abram, and the God of Yitzchak. The ground on which you are lying, I will give to you and to your offspring. Obviously referring to the land of Israel. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. This was the vision. He sees angels going up and going down, and God, first of all, promises him that eventually, he will inherit the land of Israel, and more immediately, uh, now that he's going on a trip, where there's a lot of unknown, he's, extreme, he's in very dangerous territory. Laban was not the nicest guy in the world. In fact, Yaakov had to be very careful before he engaged with such a rotten dude like Laban. God tells him, I'm going to be with you. I will take care of you. Everything will be fine. Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Hashem is present in this place, and I did not know it. Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the abode of God, and that is the gateway to heaven. Early in the morning, Yaakov took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He named that site Bethel, but previously the name of the city had been Luz. On to page 7. Yaakov then made a vow saying, if God remains with me, if he protects me on this journey that I am making and gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safe to my father's house, Hashem shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's abode. And of all that you give me, I will set aside a tithe for you. Okay, so that's the, that's the beginning of, of the parasha. The story of Yaakov going to sleep in a very holy spot, having a dream that part of the vision of the dream is the, the ladder, which has angels going up and going down, and God's promise to it. So, Rashi, who was one of the most important commentators on the Torah, he has a comment on this idea of the angels going up and going down. What's the obvious question? Who are these angels? Where are they coming from? 
Why are they going up? Why are they going down? Most importantly, if I would ask someone, where do angels come from? Probably the answer would be from heaven, right? They don't, they don't, they don't live here. They're in heaven. So if you have a ladder that's on the ground and it's all the way up there in heaven, and angels are using the ladder, you typically or intuitively think that first you would see angels coming down from heaven and then going up. So if the whole idea is uh, a vision of angels using a ladder, going up, going down, you know, sometimes when we think of the story, we just think that the vision was like these, these angels just going up, down, up, down, you know, having fun. Whatever, it's a vision, right? But if you're having such a vision, at least be a little bit more specific or at least more realistic. And if you're already seeing angels, see them coming from where they really should come from, which is heaven. So they start off on heaven and then come down and then go back up. But the Torah says that they're going up and then coming down. Rashi had that question. So Rashi explains. The Rashi, so we're on the, we're, we're continuing on source one, but we're on page seven, the second paragraph. Ascending and descending. It states first ascending and afterwards descending. All right, so the unspoken question is, angels come from heaven, not from earth. So it really should say descending and then ascending. He answered, those angels who accompanied him in the land of Israel were not permitted to leave the land. They ascended to heaven. And angels which were to minister outside the land of Israel descended to accompany him. So what Rashi is telling us is, it's not just a random vision that Yaakov he had a bad supper, so therefore when he went to sleep, he had a very disturbing vision of angels going up and down, uh, up and down ladders. It was a very specific type of vision. A man like Yaakov did not have nightmares. The, the, the dream was about a vision of what's happening to him. He was accompanied by angels, angels of protection. But since Yaakov was originating from the land of Israel, the angels that protected Yaakov in the land of Israel, they're Israeli angels, right? They're angels that belong in that land. They're, they do not accompany people outside the land of Israel. The land of Israel is a very specific holy spot. There is a unique divine energy that's present in the land, and there are certain angels that belong there. Once he is going to leave the land of Israel, there's like a changing of the guard. As Yaakov was seeing in his vision was that angels were leaving him. They were ascending. They were going back to heaven. And then the group of angels that was meant to accompany uh, Yaakov outside the land of Israel were coming down from heaven to accompany him. So it wasn't just this roller coaster of angels having fun going up and down the ladder. It was very specific. One group going up and one group coming down. That's what Rashi tells us. As an aside, I'd like to share with you the, a story. There was a Hasidic master. His name was Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin. He was known as the Ruziner, the Halic Ruziner, the Holy Ruziner Rabbi. Uh, he lived about 250 years ago. Uh, when he was a child, he was extremely bright. And um, when he was in, in school, what they call cheder, it's like the, you know, the, 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 early, the early age yeshiva, elementary school, he was about three, five years old, whatever it was. His teacher was very impressed with his unique mental abilities. And it expressed itself in the following way. When they would learn the Torah, you know, the first thing children learn in Cheder is the Chumash, is the, is the Bible. Whenever they would read a verse in the Bible, 
this young three or four year old, whatever he was, would automatically ask the questions that Rashi answers. This was before the child was able to read Rashi, was able to understand Rashi on his own. But the teacher, had, it, was, it was this great exercise. The teacher would, would read a verse, and all of a sudden, this young Yisrael would, would ask the question, and, and he would say, oh, very good, and Rashi answers, and he would give him the answer. When they came to this verse, they came to the parasha of Ayetze, and we came, they came to this verse that Yaakov saw a vision of, of, of angels going up and going down. Yisrael was quiet. So the teacher asked him, he says, Yisrael, you don't have any questions on this verse? He says, no. He said, you sure? Think, think a little bit. He says, think, I have no questions. He says, what do you mean? Rashi has an obvious question. Why does it say ascending and descending? First it should say descending and then ascending. The three-year-old says, it was a dream. You don't ask questions on dreams. Right? That was the three-year-old. He said, I, I, I'm fine. You know, it's just a dream. But Rashi is telling us it's not just a dream. You have to ask questions on these dreams because this dream is very specific and very unique. And we're talking about a specific group of angels as we just explained. That's the first, the first story in the parsha. Then let's go, we're going to skip the whole parsha and go to source number two. Uh, at, at, at the end of the parsha, you know, Yaakov basically leaves Lovan without telling him. He leaves with all of his fortune, with all of his family. Lovan is very upset. Lovan chases after him and he wants to basically annihilate the entire Jewish family. God appeared to Lovan and warned him. He said, don't touch him. You, you're, you're dealing with fire here. And so with that, Yaakov's life was saved and he had a bit of a showdown with his father-in-law, but he survived. And now he's going on his way. He's going back to the land of Israel. So source number two, really the final verses of the parasha. And Yaakov went on his way and angels of God met him. And Yaakov said when he saw them, this is the camp of God. And he named the place Machanayim. Now, what's unique about the word Machanayim? Camp in Hebrew is Machanayim. Machanayim is plural. So that means two camps. What's the idea of the two camps? So let's look at Rashi. Continuing on page 8, Rashi and that verse says the following. And the angels of God met him. The angels who minister in the land of Israel came to meet him in order to escort him into the Holy Land, right? So it's like a real... You know, it, 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 angels, the angels that escorted, that escorted him in the land, they left him. And, um, and at the end of the parasha, at the end of the parasha, those same angels are coming back to escort him back into the land of Israel. Two camps, Machanaim. The Hebrew Machanaim means two camps. The one consisting of the angels ministering outside of the Holy Land who had come with him thus far. The other of those ministering in the land of Israel who had come to meet him. So at the beginning of the parasha, he has this encounter with angels, two camps of angels. And at the end of the parasha, he also has an encounter with two camps of angels. Both of those camps are respectively the camp of angels that escorts a person in the land of Israel and the camp of angels that escorts them outside of the land of Israel. Again, before you start looking around yourself, seeing if you have angels on your right and on your left, you have to remember that that's not the way we are meant to live life. We, have to, we, we live life with the, with the realization and appreciation that God is watching over us, and perhaps, yes, there, there are probably angels around us, but we are not meant to perceive them, interact with them, etc. Unique and special holy people like Yaakov 
was able to, to really have these types of interactions. But again, um, as the Rebbe will point out, there was a difference in time periods of how he interacted with these angels. And what's most relevant to us is not necessarily how do we interact with the, these angels, but what, what really is the message of these angels to us. So what we are going, what the Rebbe does in this teaching is the Rebbe analyzes this parsha, the differences between these two encounters that Yaakov has with these angels, and what those differences teach us in our daily life. So let's go back to page number two. All right. When Yaakov returned to Israel after his years in Haran, the verse says, and the angels of Hashem came to him. Years earlier, when he left Israel, it, sa it says, and he came to the place where he dreamed of angels. All right. So the first, the first distinction between the two stories is that at the beginning of the parsha. So to speak, Yaakov sought out the angels. He sought out the place where he ultimately had the vision of those angels. At the end of the parasha, he didn't seek out the angels. The, the expression of the Torah gives off the impression that really the angels sought him out. The angels went to greet him. That's a very clear distinction. There's a difference here. So what is this difference all about? So the Zohar which was authored by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Zohar explains, when Yaakov went out to Haran, he was unmarried, he was alone, right? It was, it was before he really embarked on, on creating a legacy. And the verse states, and he came to the place after he was married and returned with all, his with all the tribes. It was as if the camps of angels met him and entreated him as it is written, and the angels of Hashem came to him, they came to meet him. At first he came to the place, but now they, the angels, came to him. So that's one distinction. Also, at first, he saw them at night in a dream. Yaakov's initial encounter with the angels, when he was still unmarried, when he was just embarking on creating a life for himself, his encounter was a, was a bit intangible. It was a vision that he had in a dream. Now, at the end of the parasha, when he's coming back after he's finished creating a legacy for himself, building a family, building up a fortune, dealing with love for 20 years, and all of the tremendous work that he did outside of the land of Israel, now he saw them with his eyes during the daytime. The Torah does not give off any type of indication that Yaakov was dreaming or even daydreaming when he met up with these two camps of angels. It says, and Yaakov went on his way and met up with the angels. So obviously there was a shift. Initially, the only way he encountered the angels was in a dream at night. Now, he's able to meet them in daylight while he's awake, as if you meet with, with, with your regular contemporaries. In other words, before Yaakov had embarked on fulfilling his life's mission, still as a single man. He was forced to go and search for the place of God where he had the vision of angels. And more so, his vision of the angels on the ladder was only a dream. But when he returned from Haran after carrying out his mission together with his sons, whom the verse calls his brothers, 
with a wholesome family, along with the product of his years of work, the tremendous amount of sheep that he had, along with their spiritual equivalents, he no longer needed to seek them out. To the contrary, they searched for him. As the verse says, and the angels of Hashem met him. And moreover, it wasn't a dream, it was in broad daylight. So now the Rebbe is going to try to take it from a biblical analysis and to, to start applying it to something that we can relate to. So what is this all about? So by way of, of introduction, Hasidic teachings speaks at length about, you know, Hasidus is all about not just teaching us that, you know, behind the scenes, the secrets of the Torah. It's there to teach us about ourselves and how we truly have a relationship with God. And by extension of that, how our relationship with each other can be more wholesome and complete. So when you talk about a relationship with God, a lot of it has to do with inspiration. You see, God wants a lot of things from us, right? There's, there's, there's a whole world out there. And just like life is quite demanding, uh, just like any job could be demanding, just like any relationship could be quite demanding, the same is true with regard to our, our relationship with God. It could be quite demanding. So let's talk about relationship that we have with people. Let's say a parent and child relationship. There are demands back and forth, right? Um, you know, the child needs the parent, the parent needs the child, uh, the parent gives to the child, there are certain things the child gives to the parent. And the fact of the matter is that there are times when there is a chill in that relationship. There are times when the child is not interested in seeing their parents. There are times when the parents are not interested in seeing their children. But then, you know, things change. Um, for some reason, the child feels that he wants to get closer to their parent, to the parent. The parent feels they want to get closer to the child. So there's always these, 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 these feelings, these, these uh, different inspirations that motivate one of the sides to get closer to each other. Um, the same is true, let's say, with employer-employee. I mean, obviously not on a different level entirely, but there are some days that are better and some days that are worse. Some days the office is a pleasant place to be in. Some, sometimes the office is not a pleasant place to be in. And there are ups and downs. And, and the fact of the matter is, this is the nature of any type of relationship. It's never, it's never static. There's always ups and there's downs, maybe not as extreme, maybe on a much lower, you know, the, the, you know the, there aren't these extremes very high and very low, but there's constant, there, it's always in flux. And the fact of the matter is that the same is true with our, with our relationship with God. As people, as God's creations, we have certain obligations. God wants a certain type of lifestyle from us, uh, from the Jewish people. His demand is the 613 mitzvot. From the rest of humanity, his demand of the seven Noahide laws. We also have our demands from God. You know? <laughs> we need sustenance, we need health, all of these things. And there are highs and there are lows. Sometimes, sometimes, someone can wake up in the morning and for some reason, they're inspired. For some reason, they, they just want to join a Torah class. They want to go into the synagogue and say a prayer. They want to do a mitzvah. They want to give charity. And they can't even explain it to themselves. They, they don't know. I, I just feel so Jewish today. Whatever. You know, it's not, sometimes it's not even just that you wake up in the morning. Sometimes something tremendous happens in the world. Let's say, for example, um, during the, you know, the, the, the victory after the Six-Day War, 
Now, I wasn't there, but I'm told that after the victory of the Six-Day War, there was a tremendous inspiration throughout the Jewish world, not just in Israel, but throughout the world. Jews felt prouder. For some reason, Jews were, 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 were looking to find ways how to express themselves Jewishly. Were they looking for that inspiration? No, it was, it was an inspiration that somehow came from outside of them. Hasidus identifies this type of inspiration. It gives it uh, an Aramaic terminology. In fact, it, it comes from Kabbalah, which is called Itaruta Dileila, which literally is translated as an awakening, an inspiration from above. Somehow we are gifted at times with the gift of inspiration that comes from outside of us. The problem is, even though this type of inspiration is, is uh, very valuable, very helpful, and it can motivate a person, let's say, to come to shul or to give charity or to do a mitzvah, etc. But just like it came from nowhere, very easily it could dissipate. You know, for a few days you feel very Jewish and you feel like you really want to commit yourself, you really want to increase or whatever it may be, but then after a few days, you're like, eh, whatever, okay. <laughs> Let's go back to regular business as usual. Let's go back to the golf course. Let's go back to the television. You know, I'm, I'm not going to continue going to show or to continue giving charity or whatever. It was exciting, but that's it. What happened? What happened to the inspiration? The reason for it is because itaruta de la an inspiration from above is exciting. It's warm. It's, 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 it's tremendous. However, you didn't do anything for it, you didn't deserve it, and you didn't nurture it. That's the most important thing. Once you have a certain inspiration, now comes the question, how are you going to nurture that inspiration? Or let's even go further. Sometimes a person is not inspired, but at one point decides, you know what? Things are, I, I feel very lost. I feel very far. You know, I, I think it's time to actually start developing a relationship with, you know, nurturing that relationship with God that I have ignored for a very long time. And, 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 if, and, and, and the person feels lost, is not sure how to do it, etc. So they reach out, they try to find some type of direction and whatever they decide, you know what, in order for me to nurture and develop and strengthen that relationship that I have with God, I'm going to take on a mitzvah. And by the way, that mitzvah is, is, is difficult, it's tough, um, you know, it, it, it costs money, it's, um, it, it, it takes me away from my friends, whatever it may be. And, you know, just doing that mitzvah, it, it's a grind, it's, it's grueling. But they, but they stick to it. And they really make the effort to do that mitzvah, and then to do another mitzvah, and then another mitzvah. Someone who, who takes upon themselves a mitzvah, not at a time that they're inspired, but they decided they're going to do it even though it's tough and they go and, and they and they really go through all of the optic they jump through all the obstacles that are put in their way those mitzvahs remain and that inspiration stays define this type of um, conviction this type of grueling commitment in Hasidus, it's called itaruta de latata the awakening from below the inspiration the commitment that comes from within yourself there's a beautiful story told about Professor Velvel Green. Um, he worked for NASA. He lived, you know, in the early 60s, he lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I believe he grew up in a traditional home, but uh, over time he drifted away from observance. And in the early 60s, uh, the Chabad rabbi in, in St. Paul, his name is Rabbi Feller. Uh, he made a connection with him and uh, a very fascinating journey ensued. And uh, the entire Green family 
uh, you know, started to keep more Torah and more mitzvahs, uh, but it took time. And uh, there was a certain point in the 60s, it was before the Greens were, were keeping kosher even at home, um, Rabbi Feller called Professor Green and he said, Valvul, I need to ask you for a favor. I know that soon you'll be traveling, you'll be taking a domestic flight or whatever it is. And uh, at that point, they started to have the option, the, the airline started offering the option of having kosher meals on domestic flights. Rabbi Feller said, Professor, if you will order a kosher meal and people will see that you're ordering a kosher meal, they'll, they'll be inspired to keep kosher as well. So Professor Green said, Rabbi, I would be a hypocrite. I don't keep kosher at home. I should keep kosher on the airplane. So the rabbi told him, look, just because you don't keep kosher at home, why should you deny this inspiration from other Jews? Anyway, the professor wasn't very convinced, but he said, Rabbi Feller, if it's going to make you happy, I'll order the kosher meal. Uh, he, comes to, he comes to the airplane. He had made that order. Uh, they take off and they start to serve the meals, and uh, the stewardess hands him a regular meal. So he clears his throat and he says, uh, Ma'am, I, I had ordered a kosher meal. She said, Who are you? said, I'm Professor Velvel Green. So she said, Okay, I'll, I'll get back to you. And uh, everyone else was served, and everyone is eating, and uh, you know, it smells good, and Professor Green was hungry, and his meal is not showing up. So he calls over the stewardess and he says, What's up? Where, where's my kosher meal? And she starts to apologize. She says something had happened. Apparently, there was a mistake in the order, uh, but we don't have any kosher meals on the on the flight. So, at the tip of his tongue, he was about to say, "Okay, so just uh, <laughs> give me a regular meal." But then he thought to himself, "The entire plane heard that Professor Green had ordered a kosher meal, and now he all of a sudden he's going to take a regular meal. That would be pretty bad. That would be awkward." So he bit his lips. He was hungry. And uh, whatever, um, he had to. So he landed in Chicago uh, for a layover, and he had about an he had an hour in Chicago. He had to go on on, the, on a later flight. It was ready in the evening. It was about nine o'clock at night, ten o'clock at night, and uh, everything was closed. The only the only uh, food stand that was open was it was a hot dog stand, and. And Professor Green was very upset. He was upset at the airline for messing up his order. He was upset at Rabbi Feller for convincing him to do something that he really didn't want to do. And he was especially upset at God. The least that God could have done was to arrange that uh, that his meal should be there. If he already made the commitment, he already made the 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 op, the, the you know he already made the move of ordering a kosher meal, and that obviously he only did for God. So why couldn't God just arrange that everything should work out well? So he's very angry, and before he goes over to the hot dog stand, he goes to the phone, the payphone, and he calls Rabbi Feller, collect. So Rabbi Feller, he's, you know, in the middle of it, it's 10 o'clock at night, and he gets a collect call from Professor Green, and he says, Rabbi, I just want to let you know that this is Professor Green speaking. I'm very angry with you. I'm very angry with God. Uh, I ordered the kosher meal. The meal never showed up. I'm extremely hungry, and that's it. Right 50 feet from here, there is a hot dog stand, and I'm going to buy a hot dog and eat it. So Rabbi Feller was, was silent for a little bit, and then he says, Velvel, you know, you always asked me, what is, what is real hardcore Judaism? What does Judaism truly demand of a Jew? Rabbi Feller said, Velvel, this is what real hardcore Judaism is. When you're hungry, and it's late at night, and everything is working against you, 
and you're passing by that hot dog stand and you hold yourself in and you don't eat that hot dog because it's not kosher, that is hardcore Judaism. So Velvet Green tells him, Feller, I always knew you were crazy, but now I, I always thought you were crazy, but now I know you're crazy. You want to tell me that all of Judaism is all about a simple hot dog in Chicago? I'm going to go and buy that hot dog, and every time I take a bite out of that hot dog, I'm going to say this is in honor of Rabbi Feller. And he slams the phone. He gets online, and as he gets closer to the vendor, he's standing in front of the vendor, and he's about to say, please give me a hot dog, and something happened. It just clicked in his mind, and he realized, no, I'm not going to buy that hot dog. And he went out of the line, and that was a turning point in his journey in, in, in coming closer to Judaism and his journey in, in taking upon himself more observance. He realized that what is the real hardcore Jewish commitment? Not when it's exciting, not when it's uplifting, not when it's inspiring, but specifically when things are dark and cold, frustrating, and, and extremely, and, 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 you're, and you're angry with God, so to speak, you're angry with Judaism. And no matter what, you stick to your guns and you continue to do the mitzvah. You continue to keep your commitment to Judaism. That is real hardcore commitment. This is Itaruta de la Tata. Now we have two, we have these two opposite uh, sources of inspiration. Inspiration that can come from above. Many times on the high holidays, that's actually a prime time where we have inspiration from above. Jews feel Jewish. They want to come to show, they want to connect to observance, they want to connect to prayer, whatever it may be. So that's Itaruta de la The problem is all of the high holiday inspiration, what happens the next day, boom. Yeah, it's like, you know, January 1st, all of the, you know, the cliche that all of the, all of the gyms, they get their membership and everyone's full, everyone's there. And then by, by January 15th, it's already empty. So uh, what happened over there, right? New Year's is an exciting time and everyone's excited to do things. But uh, if we're not really willing to, to exercise every single day and to do it, even though when it's tough, even though when we're, we have, we have, uh, we're having Charlie horse and all of that, so it dissipates quickly. So the inspiration from above is tremendous and it can bring us to very far places. But if we don't do something about it, if we don't anchor that inspiration to a mitzvah or to Torah study, whatever it may be, that we are going to do no matter what, that inspiration will dissipate as quickly as it came. But if we anchor that inspiration to something that's tough, to something that we stick to no matter how tough it is, so we anchor that inspiration and we invite into our lives even greater inspiration. So inspiration from above is not just limited to freebies. It's not just limited to a situation where, oh, here, take some inspiration, let's see what you're going to do with it. Even after we are inspired from outside of ourselves, even though some outside force is inspiring us, once we make the commitment to anchor that inspiration to something that we are going to have to uh, work very hard to make a part of our lives, when we manage to do so, we invite an entirely higher level of inspiration that brings us to higher places and to better places. Um, in fact, in, in, later on in the, the, the further reading, he brings the example of a race car, the weak car. So if you take a weak car that has a weak engine and you anchor it to a race car, so in the beginning, the race car is going to pull and it's going to go very, very fast. But then once, you know, once, once they disconnect, so the weak car might continue going pretty quickly until the force 
the, the, the thrust that was, that, was, that was given to it by the race car is going to dissipate. But if, 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 the, if, the, if, the, if the weak car is given a boost, so it can go and it can continue going, and then when it gets stuck, you gotta give it another boost and another boost. But if the, if the car does not continue going on its own accord, it's just going to get stuck in the mud. So the same thing here, we have awakening from above, inspiration. We have the awakening from below, which, would, which is probably best translated as uh, hardcore commitment, which when that comes, it invites further inspiration from above. So let's read it in the Rebbe's words. Rebbe just references to these issues. Hasidism explains, I'm on the bottom of page two. Hasidism explains that when Hashem sends a revelation from above, called Itaruta de Le'elo, in order to inspire the individual. And the individual is called Itaruta de Le'tata, the revelation doesn't permeate the subject. In other words, its impact isn't guaranteed. The individual must act for the revelation to have lasting results. However, when the individual begins with his own deeds and reaches higher spiritual levels on his own, it is guaranteed to produce a revelation and continued revelations from above. How does this connect to the story of Yaakov, the whole story with the angels? So what the Rebbe is telling us is like this. Look at the story. The story is that Yaakov is now on a journey, a difficult journey. He has a, he has a mission. He's going to be presented with many challenges. Before he ends up leaving the land of Israel, going outside of the land to a place which is completely uninspired, a place where... Um, you know, raising a Jewish family, it's not ideal. Before he goes out there, he has inspiration, divine inspiration. He has a vision of angels, right? Of divine protection, of, 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 of a blessing from God. Now, that's, that's a very tremendous type of inspiration. But you know what? Where did he have this inspiration? In a dream. A dream is fleeting. And in fact, in, in, the, in the Yom Kippur, in, in the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur liturgy, um, there, there's, a, there's a prayer over there, a very important prayer. It's called the Nasana Teikev. You know, the ark is opened and, and it's, it's, it's sung in a very solemn way. One, of the way. one of the adjectives or one of the descriptions for a person is, you can dissipate like a dream. <laughs> Dreams are here. You know, when you're sleeping, you have that vision. It, it feels so real. And all of a sudden, the annoying alarm clock goes off, and boom, the vision is gone. You can't get it back. It's, that's it. So the divine inspiration that Yaakov was treated to before he started to work hard, before he started to encounter the challenges of chutzlaretz, of outside the land, of the mundane reality, that was a dreamlike type of inspiration. It's real inspiration, but if you're not going to do something about it, you're going to lose it very quickly. After he went out of the land of Israel and he encountered Lavan and he got married and he built up a family and he, he educated that family despite all of the distractions that were present in Kharam. And he made a tremendous, he, he, he gained tremendous wealth, which for Yaakov didn't just translate in, in material wealth and in, in financial wealth, but it also meant a lot of spiritual gain. After he did that, after he went through the grueling 20 years of living outside of the land of Israel, on his own accord, he had to make that hardcore commitment. Now when he came back to the land of Israel, again, he's going to have divine inspiration, but here it's entirely different. This divine inspiration is not as intangible as a dream, 
he has it in broad daylight. He sees them awake. This inspiration is something that he can really count on. This is the type of inspiration that's going to take his hard work, his hardcore commitment, and bring it to higher heights. But what's the key? The key is, and this is the other difference, that when Yaakov went, up until then, he was alone. Everything he was doing until then was for himself. He was dealing with himself. He was learning in the yeshiva. It was in order for his own spiritual gains. It was for his own spiritual achievements. After he spent 20 years in Kharov, he wasn't alone anymore. In fact, he had an obligation to an entire family. He had a tremendous, it wasn't just tremendous wealth. I mean, he, didn't, he also had a tremendous staff. Sheep need to have shepherds, right? There's a lot that goes into this. So Yaakov now was a man of the world. He was a man that people depended on him. He was a man that had inspired many others to live life in a higher and a better way. And so here is one of the ideas that Rebbe is going to learn. How is this relevant to us? So page number three. This is a lesson for every person's personal life mission. If a Jew occupies himself with only his own spiritual goals, he will remain a loner no matter how high he reaches. And he will always need to search for his place. He'll always have to search out spiritual inspiration. And even after finding it, it will only be in the form of a dream. It will be intangible, easily easily uh, dissipatable, even if that's a word. I don't even know if that's a word. But anyway, um, very out of reach, even when you have that type of, um, that type of uh, experience. But when a Jew embraces his mission to educate one Jew, then another, and then another, and fulfills his mission as it should be fulfilled, notwithstanding the fact that his mission brings him to Haran, far from the land of Israel, but if you make that commitment to deal with the world around you, and to not give up, and to not say, you know what, forget about everyone else, I'm just going to deal with myself, then God's blessing comes in the form of angels seeking him out. He doesn't need to search for it. Heaven offers its help and assistance in whatever he may need, and not in a dream, but in a reality. This task is expected of every single Jew, even those who pursue full-time Torah study. They too, each have a unique mission to accomplish in the world. Our sages taught that Adam, the first man, designated the purpose of every location in the world, meaning that every place and every person has a designated mission and purpose. You are here because you can make a difference, and you have no idea where you are going to find it, so therefore you have to constantly seek out opportunities to make a difference and to make a positive impact on others. Indeed, the Chabad Rebbe has emphasized the importance of spreading Judaism to other Jews and noted that this is the obligation of every individual without exception. For no matter how much one invests in his own personal spiritual growth, he will always be searching out God instead of God searching him out as a result of engaging with others. So one of the main lessons that we learn from this, uh, this story of Yaakov and his two distinct encounters with angels is that we all have angels in our lives. Those angels are those moments of inspiration, those moments when we feel, yes, I wanna do the right thing. I wanna make a positive difference. I want, to make a, I want to make an impact. That's inspiring moments. But those moments prove to be fleeting. Unless 
we take that inspiration and anchor it into specific actions that we commit to doing on the good days and on the bad days. And when we do that, and we ensure that our actions are those that don't just benefit ourselves, even though they may be noble, but those are actions that have an impact on others. They make life easier for others, more spiritual for others, more meaningful for others as well. You give them a place to grow as well. When we make that commitment and we do it, even though it may be hard and uninspiring at times, then we merit to have even more inspiration. And that inspiration brings us to tremendous, greater uh, levels of, of, uh, of spiritual development and wholesomeness. And with that, that's the conclusion of our uh, official teaching. Any, any questions, any impressions, thoughts? It's open. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Tadjah Rabbi. You're welcome. You're welcome.